Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. A few weeks ago, I shared a word that the Lord had put on my heart for 2024, and we talked about, uh, that was entitled, Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment, if you remember. And we talked about the mercy of the Lord, we talked about the covenant that we have with the Lord, and we talked about the power uh, of His mercy, and I shared with you about just um, the obligation that, that we have to ask God for His mercy not just to sit back and expect or wait for God to do something without us asking for that and calling on him. And I can say that, that when I shared that word, I told you that then, that, that the things that the Lord's shown me or put in my heart for 2024 seem impossible. And I almost didn't even want to share the word because it just seemed like there's no way that that is going to happen in our world this year. But, uh, and it seems just as impossible today as I'm sharing these things with you. But I really believe that this is what God has put on my heart, that we should be calling and asking God for his mercy. And that doesn't mean that there won't be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and all these kinds of things, because Jesus said all these things are going to keep happening until the end. But he also said that this gospel, the gospel of this kingdom will be preached in every nation uh, and, and then the end will come so in the midst of the trials the tribulations in the midst of the trouble in the midst of these times that we live in and that are coming and are already upon the earth God wants to see revival in his people and we need to cry out to God for his mercy and we need to see the gospel of the kingdom the gospel of God's love preached in every nation. So today I just kind of want to continue that and I want to share with you about forgiveness today. And I feel like it's, um, I prayed about it and I felt like the Lord told me to share this message on December 31st, that this is a message for the end of the year and the beginning of the new year. What does real mercy look like in practice? So we can talk about mercy, but what does it look like when mercy is flowing down from the throne of God? What does it look like when mercy is manifest in our lives? Real mercy in practice is forgiveness. It's the forgiveness of our sin. We looked in that first message at Psalm 51, David's prayer after he had committed the sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah the Hittite and the entire uh, story uh, of David's big fall and how Nathan the prophet came to him and rebuked him and told him that he would die and how David turned his face to God and he repented. Rebuke and repent. Those two words are pretty important here. And in Psalm 51, uh, it begins with these words, have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love. And these words, steadfast love, we talked about those. That this is the Hebrew word hesed. And hesed talks about the covenant mercy, the covenant uh, 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 grace that God pours out into our lives, his steadfast love. And we talked a lot about the covenant aspect of that, how it belongs to people who are in covenant with God. 
that his mercy flows from a position of covenant, from a position of strength. And yet we also talked about all that's required for us to enter into that mercy is just to repent, just to come to the Lord, and we enter into that mercy. So he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. He throws himself over on the blood of Jesus, on the covenant. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So what does mercy look like in practice? It's forgiveness. Look at, with me at Matthew chapter 18. We're going to read, basically we're going to look at three different stories in the Gospels today. And we'll probably read a lot. We'll see how much of this we read. But we're definitely going to look at several verses here. Matthew chapter 18, and, in ver and I'll begin with verse 21. And then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up, and then Peter offers this suggestion, up to seven times. And Jesus says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Up to 70 times seven. So, when Jesus is saying 490 times, he's obviously speaking uh, metaphorically. What he's really saying is without end, continue to forgive your brother when he sins against you and when he repents. And we can compare this to Luke chapter 17. And let's look over there real quick at just a few verses. Luke chapter 17. And we'll read verses 1 through 5. You can read more later because the whole thing keeps getting better. But Luke 17, 1 through 5. Jesus said to his disciples, it is inevitable. Mark that word inevitable. That stumbling blocks, the Greek for stumbling blocks is the same word that we get our word scandal from. That scandalous things, stumbling blocks would come. But woe to him through whom they come. Notice that he doesn't say woe to him uh, that, that they attack. Woe to the person who's offended by these things. He actually is focusing on the, not the one who has sinned against, but on the one who is committing the sin. And he says, woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Okay, this is a powerful, powerful verse. Verse 3, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. So notice the words again, rebuke and repent. Nathan rebuked David, and David repented. We're not talking about... Uh, when we're talking about God's mercy, we're not talking about some kind of, uh, you know, sloppy mercy that he just throws out on everybody in the world. Oh, everybody's forgiven. Just forget about it. Let's go on and just do whatever you want to do. We're talking about a mercy that operates within the covenant by the blood of Jesus. So we see in what Jesus said, you rebuke him. Why should you rebuke your brother? And the word rebuke, granted, in English, sounds like you're going to walk up to somebody and slap them in the face, doesn't it? But that doesn't have to be what it is. <laughs> rebuke very simply means just to say, hey, that, that hurt my feelings, or that hurt me, or that was wrong. Why did you say that to me? But just be honest with them. 
tell them, okay? And why should you rebuke your brother? Because if you really love your brother, you don't want them to continue on in the wrong path that they're, that they're walking on. Because they may end up in the position of this terrible story about a person who it's better for a millstone, millstone to be hung around their neck and for them to be cast into the sea. Wouldn't it be better to stop them now, to tell them? just to be honest. And at least in Yarrington, we have this propensity to not talk to each other about these things. People will talk behind your back, but they don't want to talk to your face. That's just the truth. And we need to be honest. Now, when we're honest, we need to speak that truth in love. We could do a whole series of messages on how to rebuke people. But if you're going to do it, and you're doing it by the Holy Spirit, God will show you how to do that. And the best place to practice it is between husband and wife and at home with your children. Just be honest with each other, okay? So the rebuke is, is an important part of this. But then the repentance is also an important part of, of this. So he says, and if he repents, forgive him, okay? We'll talk about what this forgiveness is. And he says, and if he sins against you, notice what Jesus says, seven times a day. So it wasn't just seven times, but seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And then the apostles say, and this is the best part of the story, increase our faith because that's impossible, Jesus. That's not what, how we define repentance, is it? Because if somebody keeps doing it to the point that they do it seven times a day, then my mind is saying, you're, you're using these words, I'm sorry, but you're not really repenting. Because in my mind, when I'm judging you, my mind is saying, if you are truly repentant, then you'll stop doing it, right? You're not going to keep doing it seven times a day. Now, if I'm judging myself, I have a lot more mercy for myself. I could do it seven times a day, and I'm still going to be asking God, forgive me. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. And I really am. And then I do it again. But I'm sorry, God. But I really am. Okay? So this is important for us to not judge others in a way that we don't judge ourselves. If we want to extend mercy to people, then we begin by extending the mercy to others that we expect to, and, and desire to have in our own lives. Okay, so Jesus, you know, I mean, also this is somewhat metaphoric in the sense of it's probably not likely to happen in your life that some one person commits the same sin seven times every day and comes to you. But he's showing us the, the absolute extreme of this. In other words, just keep forgiving people. You re, you, you've told them that what they did is wrong and they say they're sorry, then forgive them. A great place to start with this is to remember what it's like raising children or if you are raising children to look at how you raise your children because the smaller they are the more they sin most of the things they're doing they don't even know what they're doing but when they're really little you don't even rebuke them you're just like hey stop doing that and then they get a little older you might give them the little rebuke spanking thing or something like this you might you get a little older you might take away their privileges for a week or something like that but in your heart you really honestly are always saying this hurts me more than it hurts you aren't you i mean when i was a kid and i'd hear that phrase i thought how stupid this doesn't hurt you at all this is hurting me 
But as a parent, you understand it really does hurt you more than it hurts them. You don't want to punish them. You want, and, and so when your punishment always has a goal of restoration, it has a goal of bringing mercy into their lives, right? So it's important for us to understand how Jesus defines repentance because apparently it's not exactly like how I want to define it. Because he says if that happens seven times a day, just keep forgiving them. So go back over to Matthew chapter 18. So that's what Jesus is talking to Peter about. Um, Peter and all the disciples say, increase our faith. Um, we talked about this in the first message. I'll say it again. Because the kind of forgiveness that we need to be operating in, the kind of forgiveness that releases God's mercy not human mercy. Human mercy is a completely different thing, but God's mercy. That is impossible for us to do in our own flesh. It's something supernatural. It's something that flows from heaven. It's something that can only operate in our lives by faith. So the disciples rightly say, increase our faith. And by the way, if you want to increase your faith, then use your faith. Start with something. Just start with simple obedience. That's what Luke goes on to say, to have the faith of a mustard seed. So Matthew chapter 18, verse 23, Jesus continues. He says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Everybody owes him something, and he wants to settle those accounts. What do you want to do at the end of the year? Settle your accounts. How many of you have a goal at the end of every year to start the new year without debt? And if you're not able to do it, you're like, next year, I'm starting that year without debt. I'm getting out of debt. People want to settle their accounts at the end of a year. We don't want to move forward. And the king, he wants those accounts settled. So in verse 24, it says, when he had begun to settle them, and listen to this, he found one who owed him 10,000 talents, and he was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had. So his whole family is going to be destroyed. They're not going to be sold as a package deal. They're going to be parceled out to different families. He's not only going to be sold to a different master, but he's going to lose his wife and he's going to lose his children. Everything's going to be destroyed by his debt and and all that he had and repayment to be to be made so he and, and then it says so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him so you've got a rebuke and you've got repentance saying have patience with me and i will repay you everything and the lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt so let's stop right there for just a minute and point out a couple of things he owes the master 10,000 talents. Well, just as a rough estimation, that is 150,000 years wages. I said 150,000 years. That's approximately the annual wage, if you work out the population thing, of every family in the United States of America. If you put together everything that everybody earned in the United States of America, that's how much this one slave owed to his master. So right away you understand that's impossible, right? How could he ever even get into that much debt? 
That's the point in the parable, why Jesus is using this number. Because he wants us to see that the debt we owe to God is an impossible debt. How could it ever be that we fell so far away from God? And an impossible debt requires a divine forgiveness. Because this is a debt that cannot be repaid by any person, no matter how much they worked all of their life. 150,000 years of wages. 10,000 talents. That's how much it is. An impossible debt requires a divine mercy, something that is beyond the power of man. When I first shared this word a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago, uh, I, I shared with you that the Lord began to put these things on my heart a few months ago and concerning uh, the, uh, the war uh, in Ukraine and uh, where things are going and the impossibility, I even shared a quote from a, from a priest and some different things, but the impossibility after over a million people have been killed, the impossibil impossibility of these brothers, because Ukrainians and Russians really are the same, these brothers ever being united again in, and forgiving one another is an impossible thing. But it's possible by the power and by the mercy of God. And we're going to see that in the scripture today. So this is an impossible debt, but it's forgiven for one, by one simple uh, uh, power, if you will. It says that he, the Lord felt compassion, right? This is mercy. When mercy flows, then it removes the debt. And it says that he released him and forgave him the debt. So the Greek word to forgive, the verb is aphimi. And it means literally to send something away, to let it go, to release someone from the obligation that they owe you. It's, it's not, a, um, uh, uh, it's not a, a, a statement that's too far off from Scripture when we say forgive and forget. Because to truly forgive, now you might mentally remember things because it's hard just to erase your memory, but it's a blessing when you can. Just forget it. Because that's what forgiveness is. It means to release a person from obligation. To release them completely. The scripture says that the Lord separates us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. So he completely forgives us. And the problem is never with God forgiving us. It's with us forgiving our own selves and receiving his forgiveness. And then with forgiving others. And we see that this slave had the exact same problem. Because we go on. Then and we read that after he, uh, the master felt compassion for him, released him, forgave him from the debt. It says in verse 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. So a hundred denarii is a hundred days wages. So this is approximately four months wages. It's a lot of money. I mean, nobody's making light of it. It's a lot of money. But it's four months' wages compared to 150,000 years' wages, right? So it's really nothing compared to what had been forgiven him. So he finds this guy. He owes him 100 denarii. 
And it says he seized him and he began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, and notice he says the exact same words. Have patience with me, and I will repay you. Only when the first slave said those words, he said, have patience with me, and I will repay you, he actually had no means to ever repay that debt, did he? In a sense, he was lying. There was no way he was ever going to repay that debt. When this slave says these words, there's actually a possibility for him to repay the debt. It's only four months' wages. They could work out a payment plan, right? They could dock his wages a little bit. They could do something. He could sell something that belongs to him, get rid of his new chariot that he just got, and give the money to the guy that he owes the money to. He actually could repay it. The first one couldn't repay it. But when he says this, it says that the first slave was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. I, I never understood how that debtor prison thing worked because I don't get how you're going to pay it back when you're sitting in prison. But anyway, so when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. If you don't show mercy to people, believe you me. There's going to be some tattletales that are going to be talking to God about it. I don't get why that person is so mean. I don't get why he won't forgive when so much has been forgiven him. And God's going to listen to those tattletales. You know, that's what happens here. They go and they tell the master, hey, th this is not a good situation. And so the master summons him and says to him, you are a wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, now not moved with compassion, but moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. In other words, never. My heavenly father will also do the same to you. It's talking about the eternity of judgment, if that's what we choose to have for eternity. But mercy triumphs over judgment if we choose to have mercy. He says, he, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So we also see something important in here. We activate God's mercy in our own lives when we show mercy to others. And God's mercy in our lives activates the mercy we show to others. It's a circle of God's mercy. It's, a, it's a, a cycle of God's love. If we want to see God's mercy activated in our lives, then let's do acts of mercy. Let's find ways to forgive. I mean, what, what could you forgive that seems too big to be forgiven? What step could you take? Who could you call on the phone that they would never expect that they'd get a call from you or write a letter that they would never expect that their letter would come from you? Who could you forgive in such a way that you didn't even have to say the words, I forgive you? Because, you know, sometimes people say, I forgive you, and they're really just saying, I judge you. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> I remember one time, this was a long time ago when I was in high school, and this one particular 
person in the class came up and said, after we had this revival meeting, it was a Christian school, and we had this revival meeting, and came up to me and said, I just forgive you, Kevin, for all the things that you've done to me and how much I just hated you over, over this past year. And I just want, and I literally had no idea what this person was talking about. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, thanks for telling me you hated me. I didn't really feel better after that. But is it sometimes you need to forgive people without saying a word about it. Just change. Just let them go. Just release it. Sometimes you need to forgive people that don't even live on the earth anymore. They're dead. But from the grave, they're ruling over your life. Because when you forgive and you release that person, you're really releasing yourself from those chains. And it's the power of God's mercy. So now I want to talk to you a little bit about Philemon and Onesimus. And we're not going to read the whole book or all these verses, but go open up the book of Philemon. And if you don't know where that is, because it's a little tiny book and we don't turn to it very often, it's right before the book of Hebrews, before the letter to the Hebrews, because it's the last epistle that we know the apostle Paul wrote. We're not sure who wrote uh, the epistle to the Hebrews. And in Philemon, we read a story about forgiveness. And I want to encourage you to read this story at home. I want to encourage you to even meditate on the things that are said in this story because it's a story for 2024. It's a story for the beginning of the new year. It's a story about impossible debt that's forgiven and released by God's mercy. So in this story, there's a guy named Onesimus and there's a guy named Philemon. And just to understand, Onesimus was a slave who belonged to Philemon. And praise God, we don't live in a nation that has this kind of slavery anymore. We have plenty of human trafficking, though, um, and plenty of people that live like slaves. But back then, of course, this slave, he actually belonged to Philemon. So a person could be brought into slavery back in those Roman Empire days in many different ways. Uh, if the Romans conquered a nation, then certain people from that nation they conquered would be made slaves. Sometimes they could buy their way out of that slavery over time. Sometimes they could work their way out. There were all kinds of different conditions for this. But the most likely condition for Onesimus being the slave to Philemon is that he was born into slavery. Okay, because that was another way you could be born into a family of slaves. So it's most likely that he was born into slavery. Uh, we know that Philemon is a Christian and a leader of the church, and that sounds weird to us. How could a leader of a church own a slave? Okay, but trust me, if that slave was born into your house, I mean, let's be honest with our own lives, things that we have lived with all of our lives, and maybe we don't really realize yet that God wants us to change that situation. Okay, to us, it seems obvious. Oh, you shouldn't own a slave if you're a Christian. But it wasn't so obvious right away to everybody back then. So whatever the case, Philemon owns uh, Onesimus. Onesimus was likely born into slavery. It's most likely that Onesimus was a skilled and educated male, obviously he was male, slave. And as a skilled and educated slave, he was worth a lot of money to this house, okay? Honestly, his condition of slavery, even though it's called slavery uh, here, and it was slavery, uh, wasn't really very much different from most, maybe not most, but lots of people who have jobs that they don't really like. But they don't really have a choice of getting out of that job because it pays them the money they need for the life that, that 
that they live in, but they're not happy in their job. So you could think of it like that. So as a skilled and educated slave, this is important for you to understand, to understand how great the forgiveness is and how great God's mercy is. Um, he could be sold, uh, he would be worth, or to purchase a person like Onesimus would cost at, at least, and this is historically, 8,000 8, sesterces. 8,000 sesterces, so that you understand, would be a 12 years wages for a Roman foot soldier. 12 years wages for a Roman foot soldier. And that would be six months pay for a Roman centurion, a high-placed officer. So it's a lot of money, okay? It's a lot of money. And that's what Onesimus would be worth to Philemon. If you know the story, you know Onesimus had run away from home. In verses 1 through 3, we read about Philemon and his family. You can look at those. We see that they are Christians, and they are leaders of the church in Colossae. Um, Colossae is in Asia Minor, which is the territory that Paul comes from. And all of these churches are very close to Paul, although most of his ministry is happening now in Europe. Okay? This is still in modern-day Turkey in Asia. Uh, there's a woman mentioned here by the name of Apphia. That's most likely the wife of Philemon. And there's another man mentioned by the name of Archippus, and that's most likely the son of Philemon. We do know that the Colossian church gathered in their home, and Philemon was a leader in that church. And we also know that although the church had been gathering in this home, Onesimus had never been saved. So that's a big question. Why had Onesimus never been saved? Well, if you approach the story without really thinking about it, it seems like Philemon's just a really bad guy, that he hasn't done what it, he's a church leader, and he actually still owns a slave, and then he owns a slave, and the slave's never gotten saved. He must be a really bad guy. But if you really look at the story carefully, you begin to realize that that's not the case. Philemon is not a bad guy. He is a man who's filled with God's mercy and God's love, and he's a rightful leader of the church there. There could be a lot of reasons why Onesimus had not gained his freedom. There could be a lot of reasons why Onesimus had not received Jesus as his Savior. And it doesn't have to be just because Philemon and his family are a bunch of carnal Christians. In fact, I think the most likely reason is that Onesimus is like the prodigal son. I mean, you could say in the prodigal son story, what that dad must have been a really bad dad if his son just wanted to leave home and didn't even want to live at home and wanted to take his inheritance and run away. He must have been a really bad father. But he's obviously not a really bad father because he's in the story is the picture of the father God. A lot of people run away from God. A lot of people don't gain their freedom that God wants them to have. A lot of people live in slavery when Jesus already paid the price for them to be set free. And the reason why is because of their willful pride and their refusal to receive the forgiveness that God offers them. And I want you to look at that and see that Onesimus, because he was unsaved, he, he, he heard the gospel being preached. He worked in a home where the gospel was being preached. And we know this, at least from reading the New Testament, that in those days when people were saved, that their slaves, 
began to be being set free, that Christian families were setting their slaves free. Setting the slave free was not socially or economically a simple matter, by the way. It wasn't a simple matter for the United States after the Civil War to figure out how do we allow these people to live in freedom, but they're going to also need land, they're going to need a mule, they're going to need some tools to plant something, they're going to need something. Because it's one thing just to set someone free. I mean, we could just, I won't do it, don't worry, Frank, but we could just kick Frank out of the house tomorrow if there was a law that allowed it. Hey, 13-year-old kid, just go live on your own. He'd be like, yeah, awesome. And then he'd find out, what do I eat? How do I live? You know, because we didn't give him the tools to live on his own, right? So we're raising children so that they can enter into freedom, but they need the tools to live in freedom. So there's a lot of reasons why Onesimus didn't get saved. But it's not because Philemon and his family were, were bad people. It has to do with the sin consciousness, the slave mentality that's in Onesimus himself. So look at verse 18 of Philemon. In verse 18, uh, and I'm just skipping through here, picking things out, but you can read them yourself. It says, but if this is Paul is writing to Philemon to convince Philemon to forgive Onesimus, Okay. And he says, but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention that you owe to me even your own self as well. So Paul is saying to Philemon, the reason you're saved, Philemon, is because I laid down my life to preach the gospel to you. And if you'll look in the book of Acts, Paul was getting stoned and beaten and imprisoned all over Asia Minor. This was really rough for him to preach the gospel. But he said, I, risked, I, I, I stuck my neck out. I risked my life so that you, Philemon, could be saved. And so I'm asking you, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. And he didn't usually write his letters. And I'm asking you to forgive Onesimus. And then he said, and if he owes you anything, I'll pay it back to you. And then he says, however, you do realize you owe me your entire life, right? So we see this, this, this God's mercy that we see in the parable that we just read in Matthew chapter 18. So Onesimus had run away from home. Onesimus had stolen money from Philemon. That's why Paul says, if he owes you anything. And if he had had the opportunity to steal money, then we understand that Onesimus was a highly placed and trusted slave in that house. So Onesimus was a steward in that house. He had access to these accounts. He had access to this money. And he stole the money, and he was a pretty smart guy because he was able to get all the way to Rome without getting captured. Okay, And he was living like the prodigal son. Now, let me tell you about Philemon's legal position. Legally, Philemon had a right to return Onesimus to his own possession. Legally, he had a right in any way that Philemon saw fit to extract the money owed him for what Onesimus had stolen, to extract from Onesimus the time that he owed him for the time he was gone and all other damages to the household that had incurred. And that meant, legally, under Roman law, Philemon had the right not only to imprison Onesimus, 
but to have Onesimus executed according to law. What Onesimus had done was a capital offense against Philemon and his household. And he could sell him to someone else, or he could just have him put to death. And Philemon would have been right in doing that, according to the law. So forgiveness has nothing to do with our rights, okay? Philemon has a right, and God is asking Philemon to surrender his right and forgive Onesimus. Again, it's not some kind of sloppy mercy. You read the story, you understand that Onesimus has truly repented. But Onesimus cannot repay the debt because he doesn't have anything to repay it with. All he can do is ask for forgiveness. And so Paul asks on his behalf. It's important also to understand that not only is this Philemon's legal position, but this is what the culture demanded of him. Think about this. Because that's more powerful than the legal position. What people expect out of you, that pressure, peer pressure, is more powerful than a legal position even. Why did the culture expect this and demand this from Philemon? Well, it's easy. What are you going to do? Let a runaway slave off the hook? All the slaves will start running away then. We can't do that. No, everyone in the culture, maybe not in their church, maybe the people actually in their church are happy to see Onesimus forgiven, but all the business partners Philemon works with, everywhere he works in that culture, they're not going to like Philemon just letting Onesimus come back home and get off scot-free, are they? So there was a great deal of pressure on Philemon. And as you read this story, realize that, that this is a debt that's impossible to repay. He cannot just let Onesimus go. But God's mercy says, let him go. God's mercy says, forgive him. Then look at verse 15. In verse 15, it says, Paul's writing, and, and I love this. He says, for perhaps, I like this word perhaps, for perhaps he, Onesimus, was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Wow. So Paul's saying to him, I don't want you just to forgive him, his debt. I want you to give him his freedom. I want you to release him from slavery. And I believe, Philemon, that you will find that in a relationship of brothers that are equal to each other, Onesimus will be more valuable to you than he ever was as a slave. You'll probably make 10 times more money working with Onesimus when he has his freedom than you ever made working with Onesimus as a slave. And that's the truth. But Paul is challenging him to break the stereotypes and to break the mold of the culture they live in. And we may not have that kind of slavery today, but we still have our molds and our stereotypes that we have to, that have to be broken if we're going to forgive and we'll allow God's mercy to flow. And that mercy brings a benefit to us. It enriches our lives. And he says in verse 15, talking about the sovereignty of God. So understand, the foundation for forgiveness is God's sovereignty. Just think about this. He says, maybe this is the reason why you were separated from him in the first place. Don't, don't you sometimes hate it when people say things like that to you? 
Like maybe God had a plan in all this. And sometimes you love it. Depends on which side of that pain you're in. If you're Onesimus, you love that. Oh yeah, God had a plan in all this. And I didn't run away. It was God separating me from you. If you're on the side of Philemon, it's like, what do you mean God did this? He ran away. He did it. The devil did it. But Paul just gives the devil no credit here because he sees the sovereignty of God that ultimately all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So Philemon, there's a reason why he ran away. And we're not even going to call it running away. There's a reason why you were separated from him. And God's going to do something big in this if you'll just open the, the floodgates of mercy. Just open your heart and let God be God. You don't have to fix anything. You don't have to change anything. All you do is forgive him. And that's the power of God's forgiveness. We see in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. He calls Onesimus his child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. That means that Onesimus got saved uh, through Paul's ministry there in the jail in Rome, and we'll talk about that in a minute, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. So what does forgiveness do? It makes something useless useful. It turns a useless person into a useful person. There's actually a play on words between the name Onesimus in the Greek and these words useless and useful that I'm not going to get into. But Paul is showing and driving this point home to him that Onesimus is not the man you once knew. He knows Jesus now. He's truly repented. And this guy is useful to you. So open your heart and forgive him. So Onesimus and Philemon as I said, it's the story of the prodigal son. And I'm not going to read that whole story, but I'm going to look at a couple of verses there. Look over at Luke 15. In Luke chapter 15. We have the whole story of the prodigal son, beginning with verse 11 and running through to the end of the chapter. And you know the story, most likely. If you don't, please read it. And... But look at verse uh, 17. When the prodigal son uh, comes, he's he's ended up eating worse things than the pigs eat. He's lost everything. Everything's destroyed. And it says in verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So Onesimus came to his senses at some point. And the story doesn't exactly tell us how that happened. Uh, Some people think that Onesimus was put in jail, and that's how he met, met Paul, because Paul was in prison at the time. That's not likely the case, because had Onesimus been arrested, he would not be put in the same jail together with Paul, okay? Paul's in a very special holding cell. They've got plans for Paul. You know, this is like this big political prisoner for, for, for Rome. Uh, and Onesimus would have been nothing but just a, a person worthy of execution. So that's not likely the case. What's the, what's the case really is, is this. Onesimus has run away from home. He's come to the end of everything. He's come to his senses like the prodigal son. So what does he do? He needs to find a way to get back home. And he doesn't know how to do that. 
but he knows that Paul is in Rome, and he knows that Philemon loves Paul and does everything Paul says. And he knows that Paul is a man of mercy. And so he goes to meet Paul. He might have gone there with some ulterior motives in the beginning. He might have been really sneaky in how he did this in the beginning, but he ends up getting saved. Paul preaches the gospel to him, and Onesimus receives Jesus, and they apparently spend a considerable amount of time together because Paul now says, Onesimus is my son, and he's very useful to me. So Onesimus is running errands for Paul who's sitting in jail. Onesimus is doing things for Paul, and there comes a day when Paul says, okay, it's time for you to go home. And Onesimus is probably trembling, like, I don't want to go home. I like it here with you, Paul. No, it's time to make these things right. And that's why the letter was written. So this prodigal son, he comes to his senses, and he's trying to find a way back home, how to go back to his father. And so look at verse 20. It says, so he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. God's mercy. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now, I don't know if this has ever struck you in this story as you've read it or heard it before, but it's a striking, a striking fact that the father's forgiveness goes way beyond the level of repentance in the son. I mean, really, just think about all the times that we love to think, well, they said they're sorry, but they're not really sorry. They just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Remember Jesus seven times a day? I mean, listen to the thing the son says. I mean, how dare him? He says, I've sinned. L listen to what he says. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. What do you mean against heaven? This has nothing to do with God, son. You took all my money out of this house and you wasted it on prostitutes and gambling. And you've brought a shame on our home. We're ashamed to even call you son. How dare you show your face around here? I mean, he shouldn't come back saying, I've sinned against heaven. And in your sight, he should have said, I've sinned against you, dad. It's you, dad. It's all about you, dad. That's what dad wants to hear usually, right? <laughs> Maybe we don't. I hope we don't. But that's human nature. He just says, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned in, you, in your sight. And he says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I just want to be a slave in the house. And the dad just doesn't even listen to him. He's like, put a robe on his back, a ring on his finger. My son is alive. My son who was dead, he's alive. That's God's mercy. You want to know if God's mercy is flowing in your life? Well, God's mercy is flowing freely in our lives when forgiving people feels like a party. As long as it feels like a grudge, there's still some more mercy we need to be letting through. We're okay. It's okay. Start with it being something that you don't like doing. You know, use a little mustard seed of faith and just start forgiving. It's hard. It's hard when you've really been offended. It truly is. But start to let the mercy you receive from God flow to others, and life turns into a party. 
That's what happens here because I'm not chained. I'm not bound by this anymore. I can start a new year of my life without bearing a grudge against somebody because you get really sick and tired of bearing that grudge. Don't you get tired of hating? Hatred just is so wearisome. It wears a person down. It ages them before their time. It destroys them on the inside. And forgiveness makes you like a little kid. I love in the scripture this example of the calves skipping and let out of their stalls. Because I love this time of year when you get these little calves in the field and you're driving by and look, look at them cows. And the cows are, but the calves, they are. They're skipping. Woo! They're just having fun. You know, that's, that's forgiveness. It's a celebration. It's a party. And actually, what the son says that's true repentance because it's the same thing that david said in psalm 51 he said against you you only i have sinned and i have done what is evil in your sight and again all of uriah's family could say how dare you say you've sinned against god you sinned against uriah no the debt is owed to god why is it easy for me how can it be easy for me to forgive someone who's offended me? It's easy for me when I realize they didn't do this to me. They did this against God. And I'm just going to be a channel to let God's mercy flow so they can enter into a relationship with the Lord. And the story goes on. If you know the story, read it yourself. You know that the son, the other son, he's not happy about this. He's not celebrating. He's not having a party at all. Because he thinks his brother needs to be punished. Right? And he says to the father, if you'll read it, he said, this son of yours. Notice those words when you read it. He calls his brother, this son of yours. And what does the dad do? The dad looks at him and says, this brother of yours. And it's exactly what God is saying to Cain after he killed Abel. And he said, where is your brother Abel? And he said, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. And when we begin to care about the people of God like we care about our own brothers and our own sisters, then forgiveness becomes something much easier for us to walk in. And God's mercy begins to flow. I'm going to end with one story out of Luke 16. It's another parable. Because I want to give you a, uh, a reason to forgive people. I don't want you to think it's just to get a good feeling. Just to get some spiritual blessing. Look at Luke chapter 16. We already saw this with Philemon. Philemon is going to get more financially blessed by treating Onesimus as a brother than as a slave. Things are going to change when we treat each other with love and let God's mercy flow. In Luke chapter 16... It says, now Jesus was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. So it was a corrupt manager working for the rich man. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? He says, I'm not strong enough to, get, to dig. I'm already too old to go out and, you know, work, work for Perry and work in the fields or something like that. You know, I'm not strong enough to dig. And he says, I'm too ashamed to beg. 
I mean, I've been an important person in this society for a long time. But I am corrupt. And he says, I know what I shall do. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And the guy says, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he says to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And believe you me, that is the truth. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, by the unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Well, there, there's a lot that can be said about this this particular um, uh, parable of Jesus's. And there may be a lot of things you're hearing the Holy Spirit speaking to you through this. But I want you to, to see this one thing. When the manager did what he did, so he said, how much, how much do you owe to my, to my master? And the guy says, I owe him 100 measures of oil. And he says, give me your bill. He says, I want you to cross out 100, and I want you to write 50. And the guy, okay, and he does it. Then the manager puts the stamp on it. Now you owe him 50. Bye. And the guy's like, awesome. I just got, you know, out of half of my debt. You know, the guy's forgiving the, these people's debts. Now, this is important for you to understand. He has a right to do this because he actually is still the manager. He hasn't been officially fired yet. But on his last day, he's doing some really naughty things as far as the master goes. But he actually, as far as those people's debt who is forgiven, the master could come back now and say, that's not right. You, you owe me 100 And they'd say, no, your stamp, your signature is right here. That debt's forgiven. And there's nothing the master could do about it. He couldn't go to court and prove it any other way because the manager actually has the authority from the master to forgive those debts then it's also important for you to understand that the manager is not forgiving them on his own merit. He's not giving them his forgiveness. He's giving them the master's forgiveness. His forgiveness is worthless because they don't really owe anything to him, do they? He's giving them the master's forgiveness. Doesn't that make it a lot easier for us to walk in God's mercy when I understand it's not even about me forgiving you? I'm just as bad as you are if we're going to be honest about it. So my forgiveness really is kind of worthless for you. I can't get you out of hell. I can't give you eternal life. I can't heal your body. I can't bless you in any way. My forgiveness is meaningless if it's just my forgiveness. But when I say these words, I forgive you, if what I'm really doing is saying God forgives you, then that's something powerful. And did Jesus not say to his disciples when he gave them authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, when he gave them authority to say that if two of you agree as touching anything on this earth, that it shall be done for you by my Father, which is in heaven. He gave them his authority, and he said, Who, whosoever sins 
Whoever sin, whosoever sins you forgive shall be forgiven by my Father who is in heaven. And whosoever you retain, they'll be retained by my Father who is in heaven. So he actually gave us this authority to forgive people their sin on God's behalf. And that's really what preaching the gospel is. When we preach the gospel to people, we bring forgiveness to them. So why do we stop preaching the gospel when it hurts us? It didn't, it didn't stop Paul from preaching the gospel. Maybe forgiveness seems like something that's inconvenient. Maybe it seems like something that's unfair. Maybe it's something that you feel like I have a right not to forgive them, and you probably do. And maybe it's so bad that they actually should have a millstone hung around their neck and them and be cast into the sea. But ultimately, let God decide that and just forgive. Because when you forgive, there's a shrewdness to forgiveness. When you forgive, you open the doors for God's mercy and for God's blessing. And Jesus said that by the means of the unrighteous mammon, which will fail eventually, these people will receive you into eternal dwellings. Could it not be that a day would come? I mean, we're so short-sighted. We're thinking about just how we're living right now today. But could it not be if we look at eternity that a day will come when heaven will be populated with people who will say to you, I thank you so much that you forgave me. I was so wrong, but had you not forgiven me, had you judged me, had you hated me, maybe I never would have ended up here. Maybe all of this happened actually for a reason, like Paul says about Philemon, so that we could all be drawn back together and we could live as brothers together, which is more profitable to all of us, isn't it? Isn't it profitable to us to have peace? Isn't it profitable to us to not hate anymore and just to walk in love? It's profitable to every one of us. That's why Paul said to Timothy that his desire is that men, that people would pray and that they would pray for kings and rulers and those who have authority so that we would live a life of peace. Because in that life there is profit where all men can know the truth and come to a knowledge of the truth and the gospel can be preached that people would be saved. When a church lives with strife or when a family lives with strife and we don't walk in forgiveness with one another, the gospel is not being preached by that church. Jesus said that the world is going to look through those windows. They're going to like peek in there. And they're going to see the love that you have for one another. And they're going to say, I know that those are the disciples of Jesus. But if they don't see that love, they don't know that. We're just speaking words into the wind that don't have any real meaning. So forgiveness brings profit into our lives. I want us to stand together right now. And we're going to sing another song. A song about God's blessing. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urintonvinionfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YVF Podcast.